Hello world, you're listening to episode 3 of Bitcoin and Markets, a show where I discuss Bitcoin, geopolitics, and liberty. Today my topics are R3 CEV, Morgan Stanley's blockchain paper, and the Steel Trade Wars. My name is Ansel Lindner. Let's get into a little R3. Okay, I'm going to jump right into some background on R3 CEV. They are the premier name in the blockchain, not Bitcoin arena, right? They There are others in this uh, arena of blockchain, not Bitcoin, like there's an open source project called Hyperledger, but it is deteriorating. Um, there's also a project called Tendermint that doesn't have much... Uh, traction as of now so r3 definitely is the premier name here they are an effort by a consortium of 43 banks and wall street firms at this time i think it's still 43 Uh, one of those being morgan stanley which we're going to go over their morgan stanley's blockchain paper in the second half of this uh, episode so R3 is basically a think tank for private blockchains. They do, they have produced a couple or one, uh, proof of concept product, product, which is called Corda, but really they're, they're a think tank. They've raised tens of millions already, tens of millions of dollars, and they're looking for more funding now. This kind of came up because I follow Bitcoin Airlog on Twitter and I follow his blog and he found some articles about R3. I don't know if they're written by R3 or about R3 and uh, they're looking for funding. They're looking for 200 million more in funding and it seems like they're having some trouble doing it. Like uh, their investors, their current, the current consortium doesn't really want to, they don't like, they don't like what they're seeing from R3. So they're having some trouble raising that right now. Um, it looks like the consortium might, might might not be too happy with the money they've spent already and what they've gotten for that. But I thought I'd dive into this a little bit more. So what's important to think about when you're talking about funding, uh, I'm not super, I've never raised multi-millions of dollars, but... Uh, you know, there's a few things here that are topical that we can go over. So VC-centered funding versus consortium-centered funding. Um, VCs, they want exits. So they have a three to seven year investment horizon. They want to get in early. Maybe they invest a million dollars in a project and then they get out, you know, three to seven years later for a hundred million. And those exits are usually M&As mergers, acquisitions, or IPOs. And uh, that's that's also interesting to think about when you think about the DAO. I'll be getting into the DAO in the next episode, episode four, just going over my thoughts on that. But uh, yeah, so VCs, they are looking for exits, where consortiums, they aren't looking for exits. They are the members of the this group, this type of investment group, they are the licensed class. 
they usually are wanting to maintain or increase their value chain profitability. They are in open collusion with the government and regulations, talking to policymakers all the time, lobbying policymakers. And they usually are trying to corner the tech in new market or corner the market in new tech. They're not really looking for an exit. I, I think this, these, this group of individuals in the, or companies in the consortium, this consortium, they probably will go as far as try to define the term blockchain in a piece of regulation. I don't think there's anything like that in the bit license currently, but they're probably going to try to define that term and then they're going to patent all use of blockchains or at least license all use of blockchains. So currently we have the bit license that talks about licensing Bitcoin companies, but they're going to want to patent or license blockchain companies as well and corner that market. They think there's a, there's some profitability or some efficiency there. So they want to corner that. They're not looking for an exit like a VC would. So I think the reason why R3 is raising this money is they see that there is only a certain amount of available capital for blockchain out there. Blockchain is very new. Not People don't understand it, especially the banks, especially government. They don't understand exactly what this is. And But, I mean, the banks are willing to throw money at it. Maybe there's a billion dollars out there that the banks will throw at this to see if they can corner it or if there's something there that they can they can control. So R3 sees that there is a certain amount of available capital to be raised for quote-unquote blockchain. So they're they're out there and they're trying to corner that market. They're trying to grab that share, that mine share, the market share and they're doing that through raising the money. If they can get, I think they've raised tens of millions of so far. So if they can raise another 200, you know, they're at least have that foothold in, uh, this space. They will continue to be known as the premier blockchain company. Um, and that, that position will be solidified. They have created that Corda, which is a proof of concept product so they do have something that they can go to and say look my valuation should be higher um you know this is the way we're going with this where we think blockchain is going but it seems like maybe the consortium doesn't like the way it's going we'll see how this turns out okay so we know why they're raising the money but why now why are they What's the time frame? Why are they looking to do this right now? Especially if some of their investors aren't so happy or so keen on chipping in more money. Why are they picking this time? Well, my opinion is R3 is very smart and they see the end of this blockchain meme starting. Um, the blockchain without the Bitcoin meme, I think they see that the end of that starting. Insiders are... Insiders into Bitcoins in the Bitcoin space are about a year ahead of m most of uh, other interested parties out there, especially the banks. I mean, if it, it, it feels like the insiders in Bitcoin are about a decade ahead of the banks, Bitcoin is about to scale. 
And everybody knows that the anti-Bitcoin narrative has centered around the inability to scale and the governance model of Bitcoin, right? But now we have SegWit coming. We have Lightning coming. We have Thunder just released. That's a new, new thing by blockchain.info. Bitcoin is open source. It's permissionless. It's going to be hugely innovative with the ecosystem. And they're decades ahead of the banks. Decades. Bitcoin is decades ahead. So the anti-Bitcoin camp, they've done a good job so far with building up blockchain to all the banks. And the blockchains, are, sorry, the banks want to believe that they can control this tech. So they're very, they, you can sell to them very easily. You can sell this blockchain idea to them very easily. But I think R3 feels that the time is drawing short and they need to get this now. Uh, if they complete this round of funding, then they'll solidify their place as the premier blockchain company for several more years. I mean, it's going to take the banks several years. They're going to languish in this blockchain thinking, what are we going to, how, how can we make this tech permissioned and how can we control it? So the blockchain, not Bitcoin angle, the banks are going to be stuck there for a while. And R3 thinks that they can be the guys, right? They can be the people that are there that <clears throat> the go-to for this blockchain stuff. So that's my take on the R3 situation. Now I want to go into Morgan, the Morgan Stanley blockchain paper. I've there's a link in the show notes so you guys can see that it's a PDF. Uh, there's uh, it's called Global Insight and the I guess it's a nine maybe not a quarterly paper but uh, maybe a yearly thing where they talk about uh, you know what they see coming up. This one is specifically the Global Financials FinTech Report. And it's titled Blockchain and Banking, Disruptive Threat or Tool. So they go through here and they try to define what Bitcoin is. I think they're talking to investors or, or shareholders, um, even employees, you know, the uh, investment advisors or the uh, any sort of stakeholder in Morgan Stanley. But this report, it reinforces... Uh, the common belief within the Bitcoin community, at least I see this, it reinforces the common belief in Bitcoin community that the financial industry is so far behind. I mean, I talked about this a little bit before. I was saying the banks are decades behind, but this is straight from Morgan Stanley. It was released last month, April 20th, 2016. And you'll hear some of this in here. They just... They don't get what's going on. They don't have any clue. This is their definition of a blockchain. I'll start with this. Quote, software that enables data sharing across the network of individual computers, period. That's their definition of blockchain. Um, they don't get it, obviously, but I think they sense an existential threat from Bitcoin. There is a tone in the paper that they mention, you know, Bitcoin and unpermissioned. They call it unpermissioned, not permissionless. 
uh, ledgers and they they sense this threat but they don't they don't understand it they still think that it is like every other threat out there that they can clamp down they can get their regulations out there they can make sure that they control this tech i mean i'm sure they have patents galore already trying to control this tech um, so i'm just going to read a little bit here from page eight let me bring it up Okay, let's find this, page eight. So this is a section um, that's called the 101 of blockchain. And they just define blockchain and then they talk about how it works. So here we go. What is a blockchain? It's software that enables data sharing across a network of individual computers. A blockchain describes computers transferring blocks of records in a chronological chain. Blockchain technology is also known as distributed ledger. The term distributed ledger refers to the concept that each user shares the same ledger or set of accounts as defined by the software. Blockchain and distributed ledger are used interchangeably. How does it work? Through shared software infrastructure and trust. Users agree to a software protocol describing the rules for the type, quality, and transferability of data in addition to the rules for authorization, verification, and permutation. Users trust that information entered into the transactions conducted over the blockchain software are valid. Blockchain technology in financial services, best initial use cases, we think, are to solve cluttered processes in the post-trade settlement period where there is a chain in title. Wow, okay. So, oh, where where can I start on this? They obviously don't understand what a blockchain is. There's no reference to security or uh, decentralization or anything like that. The The whole point here is that they're describing how computers talk to each other in a chronological chain a chronological chain um it sounds like they don't even know how the internet works <laughs> but um they, they talk here about infrastructure and trust users agree to a software protocol describing the rules so how do you make sure they agree how how do you make sure that they're that you those transactions are quote-unquote valid so yeah users agree to this and the users trust each other um, but how do you enforce those rules i mean they don't say it here but it's obviously implied that it has to do with regulation it has to do with the legal structure with licensing of some sort the government will make you comply they somehow they will make you create valid transactions um the vitalik calls these people recently called them uh, law maximalists 
and I, I think that's a good term. I mean, he also quote he also created the term Bitcoin maximalist, which I love and I wholeheartedly embrace. But uh, yeah, so these guys are definitely law maximalists, and they don't know what's going on with blockchain. That that is their definition and what how they think it works. But moving on, let's go to a different section on sec, uh, page six, actually. Uh, this is a section titled Misconceptions of How Disruptive Blockchain Adoption Could Be. And before I read this, I want to talk a little bit about collusion. All right, so collusion, you know, is when two or more parties get together to collude in the marketplace. So they think they can both benefit from colluding. They produce if they produce this much each of them produce say 25 widgets they can set the price higher and they can both benefit they don't have to compete against each other in other words so but the game theory behind collusion is that the cheater wins right if you're the if you're the good behaving party in a collusion scheme you will end up losing because the other person will simply produce a little bit more and they will get they will get the benefit and you will get screwed so collusion always breaks down and mainly the way collusion breaks down is somebody produces more than they're supposed to that's the i think that's the most common way it breaks down so you have excess right you have excess production you have uh, excess investment or anything like that you have excess in the marketplace because you colluded and also in a lot of these schemes and you can tell that these are um, regulatory schemes collusion regulatory collusion i i don't know what better to call it but you always have one party on the winning side and I bet you can guess what that party is. You always have one party that's always on the winning side, and that is the policymaker. The winning side always includes the regulator. And there's one party that's always on the losing side of collusion. And that's the public. That's the market. The market always loses in collusion. And the policymaker always wins. And so if you want to be the winner, you're going to cheat with the policymaker. But let me read a little bit more here on page six about the misconceptions. So they are trying to say blockchain isn't going to be as big as we think it is. So here you go. Um, this, the, some of this language is really hard to read, so bear with me here. We think there are a few misconceptions that may overstate quite how disruptive distributed ledgers could be. Okay, and then the subsection, blockchain adoption does not mean unpermissioned networks. Not one bank nor policymaker that we have met with on blockchain gives even a second thought to an unpermissioned public network. There are so many layers in there. So I let me finish the next couple sentences and then we'll go back and, and take this part a little bit. So uh, KYC, AML, and other considerations means it has to be a permissioned network. This reduces the risk that a new startup will be able to disintermediate entire value chains. 
So let me just tackle that end first so you can see that, like I said, they have they can sense this existential threat. And we can see it right here in that last sentence I read. Quote, this reduces the risk that a new startup will be able to disintermediate entire value chains. So they understand that the key to the castle is the permission of the network. The permissioned versus the unpermissioned of the network. That if that's the way they keep somebody from disintermediating a value chain. And what is a value chain? Well, it's where successive services or successive uh, production or whatever adds value along the chain until it gets to the end consumer and that end consumer reaps all this added value. It's pretty simple. But what they're trying to do is say, you don't get that. You don't get the innovation benefits. You have to have our added value, our entire value chain. You aren't able to disintermediate us. You must have permission. No, not one bank or policymaker that they've met with. Those are the permissioners. Those are the people that are permissioning you. They own you. They own their value chain. They own your product. They own your money. And KYC and AML is just an excuse to have a permissioned blockchain. And the first sentence here where they talk about, they don't even give a second thought to unpermissioned public network. Well, Bitcoin is there. I mean, what are they trying to say? That they don't give a second thought to the existence of Bitcoin? Do they, they obviously know Bitcoin is there. They don't give a second thought to regulating it. They don't give a second thought to not regulating it. I, the, the language is confusing, but the idea is simple. They're obviously saying that there's no way that they would let an unpermissioned public network happen or continue. They are going to, they don't even give it a second thought. So if a piece of regulation is drafted and proposed, probably by the banks that will write it, or maybe even R3 for crying out loud. So this piece of regulation comes across their desk and it says, we're going to permission all blockchains. Well, of course they're going to fucking sign it because they own that value chain. You are owned by that value chain. Your money is owned by that value chain and they don't give it a second thought that they own it and they can do whatever the hell they want to with it. I mean, you can, there's so many layers to just those three sentences that I can't take it. I, <laughs> this is, it's, it's going to get so bad. And the funny thing is they think they can do this and they're showing all this arrogance but they don't even know anything about what a fucking blockchain is. They don't even know what Bitcoin is. They don't understand that they are in the past. And if there were no regulations right now on, say, you know, with the SEC on equity and all this stuff, the crypto space would be flooded. Everybody would be raising equity this way. 
they are so far behind. And Bitcoin has been held back by these people already. But it's finding a way. I, I love the quote by Andreas. This was, oh gosh, maybe even two years ago, where if you regulate Bitcoin, you're just going to make a nastier Bitcoin, right? And that is exactly what they're trying to do here, un unconsciously. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to make it nastier, faster, more scalable. I mean, if we're contrarian, what we should want is more regulation, we should want these guys to try to regulate us, right? Regulate Bitcoin, please. You're going to make Bitcoin so much better. But they don't see it that way. They want to corner the market. They want to keep you locked into their value chain. Screw Bitcoin. They're trying to disintermediate my value chain that, I, that you belong in. I own your money. I can tell you how to spend your money, where to spend money, what to spend your money on. I can take some of your money if I want to. Oh, and no, I'm not going to protect your money. Swift's got hacked into, what, twice, three, four times this year already? Or at least within the last 12 months? JP Morgan losing all their users' data. They don't care. As long as you stay inside of their value chain, they don't care. And that's the truth. You are a dollar to them. That's it. The policymaker doesn't care either. Because the policymaker, you know, has meetings with these people, obviously, all the time. Probably at five-star hotels in the Virgin Islands playing golf or something like that. Or they get dona donations to their favorite charities in their or nonprofits in their district so that they can get reelected again and again and again the policymakers don't care 99% i mean all not all policymakers are bad but power corrupts power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely right so they don't care they're corrupted and this obviously says that they meet with these policymakers. And these policymakers don't give a second thought about permissioning you. Locking you in to a value chain. Their value chains. The policymakers do not care about locking you into, a ch into chains. Neither do these banks. They want their chains. They probably like blockchain because it's has the word chain in it and they really like chains they don't care about you and okay that's all i have on this i mean this this paper is pretty enlightening i mean it shows you not only how far behind they are but you know how much how highly they think of you <laughs> or how not highly they think of you um there was one other spot in here that i wanted to talk about um, security. Oh, governance, security, regulation. So they go through the 10 points of blockchain and, okay, so page 13, they go over cryptography slash security and they're talking about, you know, the blockchain, different characteristics and stuff. So let me just read you this a little bit. Resilience to any security attack, especially state-sponsored terrorism and bugging, 
is critical. <laughs> so they know the state is sponsoring terrorism, right? I mean, that's, oh my God, that is so in your face right there. They, <laughs> the attack that they're worried about first, especially worried about state sponsored terrorism and bugging, that is critical. <laughs> oh my God. So we work on the assumption that financial markets are going to be hacked intensely and that the issue is one navigating the risks as best we can. We are encouraged by the success of the established payment networks, which have been effective, which have made effective use of both improved authentication technologies, EMV, as well as seemingly effective behavioral and historic analytics to keep fraud rates low. So basically saying we're doing a great job, uh, pat ourselves on the back. All of our users' information has been compromised. But we're doing a great job. And, you know, they can just reverse a transaction, right? So no transaction is final. There is no settlement on these credit card transactions for six months, three to six months. Where Bitcoin is scary fast at 10 minutes compared to that. They also go, let me, um, I was going to be done with this, but let me go in a little bit further into just right way at the top. They talk about this, uh, how they, they, some people think that Bitcoin or blockchain will be good because of the, the T plus zero. And that's Blythe, one of Blythe Master's favorite, uh, terms. It's a, it's an industry term about when the settlement happened. Trade plus what? Trade plus zero days, trade plus one day, trade plus two days. Currently, the industry standard is tra uh, T plus three. And they go into here saying that, you know, a lot of these blockchain people are talking about T plus zero. But that might not be good for banks. They might not want that. Um, Post-trade settlement... Sorry, guys, I'm looking through this paper here. Okay, so this is on page five. Additionally, there are opportunities to shorten the settlement window. While settlement windows are a function of regulatory and legal requirements, technology is pushing people to expect increasingly quick response times. Regulators are already moving to shorten the settlement window in U.S. equities. U.S. moving to join Europe from T plus three to t plus two over the next 12 to 18 months and while today's technology can adapt to deliver shorter settlement times blockchain technology can be useful particularly in assets that have at least efficient netting or sorry have the least efficient netting clearing collateral management and long clearing periods oh here we go now this goes to page seven uh, blockchain adoption does not mean T plus zero. There are quite a few blockchain firms whose business model centers on a quote T plus zero settlement time frame. The pitch is that it is more efficient than today's T plus three days to settlement. Their business case misses a few key points. First, the primary reason for multi-day settlement periods is regulatory and legal rules and market practice, which enables a broader participation by retail investors. Second, 
Current technology could deliver T plus zero settlement today in a broad range of asset classes if regulatory and legal rules allowed it. You don't need a blockchain to deliver T plus zero. Third, markets with T plus zero today appear to have less liquidity and more volatility than markets with a settlement win with a longer settlement window, I guess. Um, Several reasons, chief among them, is that in a T plus zero settlement window, there is no shorting, which reduces liquidity. We expect settlement windows to shrink due to regulatory and legal changes, but not to T zero. As they shrink, lenders lose some revenues, but also free up capital. If blockchain technology can drive down costs too, competition could migrate settlements to t plus one digital asset holdings is building a t plus what you want quote t plus what you want into its blockchain solution which should enable users a more explicitly to more explicitly price for the liquidity they want um okay this is getting long, but we find that there are some vested interests of custodians or potential banks, potentially banks, where actually T plus two or three is quite helpful because they get the carry or is the benefit case of resilience and cost cutting offset the nuance of the carry. Generally, the reason why there are vested interests who need to, for example, earn the carry is because they're operating a massively expensive infrastructure without which the business would completely be completely unsupportable. And that's from Blythe Masters. So, um, yeah, she's saying straight up that, uh, you know, they're getting the carry on all these trades. So why would they want to speed it up? They can, you know, suck that interest off the top, right? And if everything has three days of interest, I mean, that's the banks are just making tons of money on that. That's free money. But yeah, they say that they they have some costs for the whole infrastructure, but they get paid more when they create more settlement, right? They create more trading and they get more money. So it doesn't matter everybody get into those e-trade accounts everybody get into their fidelity stuff and make sure you trade come on day let's become day traders you control everything let's get everyone trading because they know that they're getting this carry off of each trade each settlement don't save money don't you dare put it in a savings account or buy bitcoin or gold and silver put it in the market and do some trading Right, because then they get the they get a little piece off everything. Plus, they can front run you. Right, they can just their computers know your trade is coming, and so they buy it a fraction of a second before you do, and then sell it to you at a different price that they got the benefit of. And that's a known thing. I mean, Nanex, they're a company that looks at you know the nanosecond of these markets. They can show that these guys are front running every trade. And if you can make a fraction of a penny off of every trade, you know, why do you need to work? You don't, you're not providing any value. That's their fucking value chain that you are stuck in.
and they're going to make you happy in there. Anyways, okay, so that's all I have for Morgan Stanley. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about the steel industry. Stay with me. A lot is happening in the steel industry right now. There are protectionist and nationalist wildfires popping up all over the globe. It includes the U.S., China, Japan that I mentioned in my last episode, South Korea, Italy that I also mentioned in my last episode, the EU, and the U.K. Now here's a little backstory. Back in 2015, the U.S. imposed a sliding scale of tariffs against Chinese steel. Among other countries, Japan was in there and South Korea and Italy, but uh, they claimed that there was unfair government subsidies for these Chinese steel companies. These subsidies were, or these uh, tariffs were as high as 250% with claims at the time from experts that 500 would be damaging, but 250 is not. This last week, the U.S. increased tariffs on Chinese steel up to 522%. So first they claimed that 500% would be damaging, and now it's over 500 at 522%. Up to, it's a sliding scale, remember. They look at the different companies and they figure what their subsidies would be and then they raise the tariffs by company on the steel that's coming in the U.S. China produces over half the world's steel. And their slowing economy, that's forced a lot of that production out of China and into the global market. Italy and Japan also are known to support their their steel industry europe has subsidy or sorry tariffs against chinese steel set at 16 percent. that's a long-term thing they've had that for quite a while um, efforts in the eu though recently they've tried to raise these tariffs against chinese steel because everyone says that china's dumping their steel their exports have grown to something like 112 million tons a year. And that is more than the U.S. produces total. So they, they are exporting more than the U.S. produces. Granted, only 2% of their exports goes to the United States right now. So it's not that big of a deal for China uh, that the U.S. raised these tariffs. But, I mean, it's a big deal for the U.S., so uh, in February, China kind of struck back and they imposed tariffs on electrical steel specifically. But that was not, that's not out of the U.S., but that's out of the U.K. specifically. And so now the U.K. is all up in arms about this uh, China having these tariffs against their steel. Their big steel plant in Wales, it's like called Tata or something, they are near going out of business and everyone's blaming these you know uh, regulators or these uh, representatives that aren't raising tariffs on chinese steel so you know you notice that their thinking is backwards so now there's a major fight going on there's tariffs being raised everywhere people are fighting for higher tariffs in every country basically to protect their domestic industries 
Um, okay, so if we break this down for the U.S., we raised tariffs by, not we, but the United States government raised tariffs by up to 522% on Chinese imported steel. Well, I thought our infrastructure was in disrepair, guys. I thought that was one of your main talking points, that we need to raise taxes to build up our aging infrastructure. And most of that infrastructure is built with steel. So if you're going to make uh, those projects 500% more expensive, that's pretty insane, don't you think? Wouldn't our infrastructure just slide into more disrepair? Because most of that infrastructure is public, right? So instead of fixing a bridge, they want to save a few jobs. And it totally negates the reason in the first place why these steel industries are put up. They're having a hard time. Because the easy money policies of the government created bubbles in financial assets. And took investment money away from industrial uses and put it towards financialization. So you're just continually continuing the malinvestment. I mean, that's, that's the, and it's not even saving jobs actually. It's hurting everybody because no one's going to buy steel, right? It's going to drop the demand because the price is going up. It, it adds cost to building almost everything inside the United States. And on top of that, steel goes into a lot of other products that we make. And some of those products we export. I mean, the U.S. doesn't export a lot, but it goes, steel goes into everything from cars to washing machines. And if you make, if the steel is more expensive, those products will be more expensive. And so the consumer is hurt again, and the exports are hurt again because our exports can't be competitive. It, it's a cycle that makes people poorer in general because everything costs more. That is common sense, and trade wars are bad for the market. They're bad for the public. Now, a big thing here is uh, this Baltic Dry Index. In February of this year, it hit all-time lows. Now, this is, only, this is an index that measures the cost to ship a ton of freight by sea. And it's, it's not that old. It's only a 30-year-old index. It goes back to 1985. But we recently had an all-time low this February. It hit 260, I think. And the all-time high is over 10,000. So that's, that's a generally accepted gauge of international trade and shipping. And it's hitting an all-time low. A lot of experts out there will tell you, oh, don't worry about that. That doesn't mean anything. That is the generally accepted gauge. That's the measure that we measure international trade by. At least a lot of people do. And it's down at all-time lows. So trade, international trade is already at all-time lows. And then they add on these tariffs. And, you know, one tariff always spills over into another tariff. So, you know, the the U.S. car manufacturers are now 
their Ford say, because they export trucks and things. So Ford will not be able to compete and they will, they will need subsidies from the government, right? Because their trucks will be more expensive. And if they export them to China, maybe China puts a tariff on trucks. And it's a vicious cycle that ends in no trade. And you know, there's a common saying that when goods cross borders, armies don't. And I don't, I don't know who said that, but that's, that's stuck with me for a long time. And, uh, trade, trade needs to happen for peace. Right? So this is just another step along what some of us, um, think it's coming i think it's coming but in a different way maybe i'll talk about that in another episode but there is war coming in some degree and international trade is a a very good indicator of that and it is going to all-time lows with tariffs being raised all over the place the trade wars are heating up and it could affect the global market more generally which in turn will affect the dollar and other currencies, oil, and the Fed's choice to raise rates, how that works out. And ultimately, it'll come back to Bitcoin and, and gold and silver and how that really affects them. But I don't, I didn't know if you guys were all uh, staying up on some of these other topics. So I wanted to bring up these steel tariffs and the decline in international trade. And that's about it. Thank you for listening today. I know it was a little bit longer than my last, my first two but uh, still getting the hang of it my next episode i'm going to be covering the dow which is a new autonomous vc firm we kind of touched on that a little bit today so uh you can see it'll be some interesting commentary i hope uh, it recently raised 150 million dollars worth of ether and lots and lots of people are talking about it it's getting a lot of people interested in crypto so we should see how that turns out please don't forget to like and subscribe to this channel that helps me out a ton and you're li thanks for listening my name is ansel lindner and this is bitcoin and markets